Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today I have Linus Axelson. So Linus, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come onto the podcast today. Oh yeah, all good. So so fun to be here actually. Yeah, so we, we were literally just about 30 seconds ago t- talking about your name because you know I was pronouncing it Linus Axelson and I asked you how you pronounce it. You said Linus. So where are, are, are you from originally? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Swedish, um, and uh, you know the the name I, I don't know where that originally comes from. I think my parents said it was like Greek or something originally. I, I really don't I, I really don't know though. Yeah, because you've got Lean. I mean, I guess it's Linus Torvalds, who's you know the Finnish right. uh, developer who made was it Linux. Uh, so obviously, I've always called you know him Linus, but obviously, I've never spoken to him or met him, so I've never. I doubt he would correct it anyway, but I've never had the opportunity to ask him. So, Linus. So, I'm wondering now uh, how the correct pronunciation of Linux is, because I've heard Linux, Linux, Linux. Well, well, how do you pronounce it, actually? That's a good question. I do say Linux, but that's maybe out of habit of my own name, I guess. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, you'd have to ask him, I, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and then I mean, there's uh, the other guy. There's uh, you know tech tips. Yeah, Lin- <laughs> yeah, Linus tech tips. But I mean, every- I'm pretty sure he pronounces it Linus, doesn't he? I think he does. Yeah, yeah. But that's but also he's, maybe an American influence. Yeah, you know? he's what a Canadian or American, so right, right. He, he's not from a different part of the world. Um, I, actually, I wonder. I mean, I don't know what his family history is. Is if he's been in America, you know, for a f- generations, or if he was from somewhere else. Because he he just looks American or Canadian, you know, wherever he's from. He doesn't look like he should be, you know, Swedish or Finnish or anything. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe the parents just like the name. You do get that as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you worked at Paradox. What mm-hmm. was that experience like? And which projects did you work on? Because Paradox does a fair bit of, you know, development. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I worked on a lot of uh, games at Paradox, actually. Uh, the, uh, my role is like technical artist you know it's it's something that paradox doesn't have a lot of so i had the chance to like the opportunity to work on a lot of different uh projects um let's see uh i started with tank command which was a, like a mobile game that we did um a few years ago um and then after that it was um age of wonders planetfall which is uh, uh another like a strategy game and there was Imperator, uh, Imperator Rome, uh, Victoria 3, um, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2, uh, which is currently, I guess, in development or, you know, in indefinite development, I, was, <laughs> I suppose. I, I really don't know the status, status of that mm-hmm. game. Uh, it was really fun to work on it, though. And then uh, most recently, Crusader Kings 3, which was like kind of the main uh, game that I worked on. Okay, out of all the ones you worked on, uh, Paradox, which was your favorite to work on and which was your favorite to play? I mean, do you play any of them? I do, I do. I'm not the biggest, like, uh, Paradox fan, you know, the super fan. They have, a like, a, a you know very intense fan base, and I respect it a lot. And the games are really well made. It's just I'm a little bit more casual-leaning, so I would go more towards something like Sid Meier's Civilization or, or something along those lines. Uh, personally, but I did really like the depth of of those games. Though um, I really enjoyed working on Bloodlines too. Like I said, it was more uh, like a 
you know, modern 3D game, not not really a strategy game. But uh, uh, Crusader Kings 3 or CK3, as we call it, it's uh, it's really deep and and like there's a lot of fun stuff going on in there. Oh yeah, for sure. And why did you leave Paradox to become a freelancer? I think you know I, I've, I've worked there for a few years, and I mean this is a really recent development, but. I worked there for a few years and I just felt like, you know, I remember the time when I was just starting and learning and stuff and I was doing like solo development at home and I was doing projects and I was doing this and I was doing that. I was doing game jams. I was like intensely working at all times, you know, and it gave me so much energy and I just remember that. And then, you know, working in the industry for a few years, you're like, you get into this, like, um, uh, this, I don't know, this mind state that it's not really, you know, my game. It's not really my project anymore. You know, it's someone mm. else's and it, that kind of thing, you know. And the, in the long run, I actually, the reason I started in this industry is for creative reasons. You know, I wanted to make my own stuff. I wanted to create stuff and, and uh, make sure that I put my mark on stuff. So that's what I'm kind of looking for. And uh, as far as the freelancing goes, it's it, that's a way to, you know, use what I've learned to make some money. But really, like, I'm... Um, trying to look at making my own projects as well, like game projects and stuff like that. Yeah. And because you spoke about doing your own projects, you know, beforehand, did you release any of those projects, like on mobile or on Steam or anywhere? Uh, I did, but this was, I mean, I released uh, something on like itch.io, which is like the, the yeah. you know, indie developer kind of website that you release stuff on. Um, it's not really something that I'm, you know, it wasn't really polished or anything. I was still in like super early in my career and everything. So I, I really wasn't like, I didn't have uh, full control of what I was doing. You know, I was just improvising. But I think, you know, if if I were to make another project at some point, I would probably aim for Steam um, just to make it kind of a little bit more official and you get like like more clear and concise feedback and there's there's avenues to update really easily and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing with itch, it doesn't, I mean, it's a great way to put stuff out there, platform like itch, but something like steam, if you're going the more, you know, desktop route, or, you know, obviously you got the app store and the Google play store, those, the process of it in terms, like you said, of updating it in terms of, you know, just reaching out to users, like, especially when you got stuff like notifications on your, you know, your phone, you know, automatic updates, you know, somebody could play a game on itch and they never go back to it. Whereas somebody could download a game on mobile, play it a few times, forget that they've, you know, got it and get a, you know, a notification and the notification right. will be like, you know, new update, this, this, and this is released. You get this for free. And then I might be like, you know what? I'll check it out again. Uh, and obviously, you know, similar thing with steam as well. So yeah, definitely those platforms, the, you know, sort of reach and what you can do with it. But again, they're more equipped for that. Yeah. So what did you, did you make those games yourself or was it with other people and what tools did you use? Yeah, for the most part, I, I did stuff on my own. Um, uh, obviously, in terms of uh, my like working at Paradox and stuff, there's a team of like seventy people or, or something, you know. Um, but but in terms of like before that, when I did my solo dev stuff, it was like it was mostly me actually. I, I was living with a roommate who also 
was like a solo developer at the time and we were kind of bouncing ideas back and forth you know just like <laughs> you know i would see him in in the kitchen or something and we uh, i would cook up a meal or something he'd be like hey have you uh have you seen what I did lately? And then I would show the like, you know, the latest development mm-hmm. that he would show, like whatever he did. And then like I would quickly wrap up the cooking. I'd be like, fuck, I gotta get back to my room. Actually, sorry, can I swear on this? It's fine. <laughs> all right, a- cool. <laughs> anything goes on this podcast. All right, all right. Yeah, no, but I like the 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 spirit was just was just um I wouldn't say competition, but more like, you know, a, a friendly sparring or or something like that, you know, where where you would kind of you know. Uh, encourage each other to do more like you, you know excited to show you, you know you're i know what you mean you're excited to show something off less to put them down more to be like oh you know i've done this and it's a motivational thing to be like you know uh, you know tomorrow i'm gonna see him again you know i wouldn't mind showing him this new feature whereas right. when you're you're just doing it yourself not showing it with anyone no one's taking it in because obviously there's that's the other thing that other individual you're talking about clearly has an interest in it he's doing you know his own stuff if he had no interest never asked didn't you know care when you showed him and wasn't doing his own stuff the motivation to do it to kind of you know show it off to him and then him showing what he's working on wouldn't be there so yeah you you know obviously having that person but then having the reciprocation from that individual as well is a huge huge thing oh yeah for sure yeah i mean uh- he uh, he went on to like you know develop his own game and he's still doing it. He, uh, his his game is called Starfetchers. It's uh, the first uh, thing is on Steam. Uh, anybody should check it out because it's a it's a it's a really cool game. But it, it, yeah, you should look out for more from him too. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally just done a quick Google of it. Is it like a side-scrolling game? It looks like. Yeah, it's like a two D side-scrolling game with like fo- focus on uh, some fun combat and narrative and stuff like that. You know, yeah, it definitely looks interesting. And yeah, the recent reviews of it saying very positive. The on the all reviews is overwhelmingly positive. So it seems to be very. I don't know if this is the person's name or the like the name on the platform. Savalv's like stick. I mean, I'm watching the <laughs> Savalv's stick. That's close enough. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Suave stick on, yeah. Suave stick on. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there we go. So, your star fetches, anyone that's watching, check that out. Yeah, it's free to play and you can actually play right now. And he's doing something for the star fetches episode one, which is coming soon, apparently. Word. Yeah. I mean, did you ever talk to Suave Sticken about working together? Like, what was he? Because you're a technical artist by trade. Right. Uh, what was... Actually, before we move on to that, what does a technical artist do? How does that differ to an artist, you know, uh, person? Oh, that's, that's such a good question. I, I still don't know. Um, <laughs> I, we, you know, we make, we <laughs> improvise every day, kind of. It, it's kind of like... Um, no programmers they they love uh they love bits and bytes and they love zeros mm-hmm. and ones uh they love logic and stuff like that and then you have artists on the other side and they express themselves in terms of you know shape and color and and things like that and they oftentimes they can have a clash in in their discussions or you know teamwork or, or stuff like that where they don't really sp- speak the same language but they need to achieve the same goal if that makes sense to make you know this one game that they're making and that's where the technical artist comes in, someone who has a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Okay. So talking about that, because obviously you're an artist by trade, but I noticed on your LinkedIn page 
there was you, it was mentioned that you have like some skill within OpenGL. Uh, like, how much OpenGL do you know, and how have you used that in your career? Yeah, so so you know, that's pretty much how I started. Um, was doing like as a st- you know student, um, uh, we did some you know uh, graphics programming and stuff like that. Uh, and mm. it was OpenGL and it was DirectX, and those were the two main things that were going on. Um, mm. And then you know after that, you kind of after a few years, you the the like the power of the engines, like the standalone engines, really took over. So it was at first it was like yeah, Unity was there, but it was like kind of wasn't as as prominent as it is now. And the same with Unreal, like Unreal existed, but it wasn't really like that accessible. It was before they kind of launched the whole uh you know epic store and all that stuff yeah when it used to be udk or when they used to bundle on like when you would buy unreal tournament and you would get unreal right. engine in the folder as well <laughs> exactly so so yeah it wasn't it wasn't like super prominent so it was kind of useful to have that background where where you know some of the like you know more more uh closer to the the hardware type stuff that actually comes in handy at a workplace later on but but nowadays it's like it's it's perfectly acceptable to just learn one of the engines and go with that, mm. uh, and and that's that's all right, that's good, and it's actually good that the the tools have come such a far, like such a long way to where you know you you could check out tutorials all day and then you could make something at the end of the day, even though if you if you're just starting out. Oh yeah, for sure, and yeah, the thing with these and like. Back in the day, you either had like two types of engines. Ones that were so technical that the average person just couldn't do much with it. And you basically had to be a good programmer anyway. And it was almost like uh, you could, you might as well just use OpenGL or DirectX directly yourself and, you know, do it. Or you had engines that were so high level, you couldn't do much with them. There was a bit of drag and drop in, and they might have some sort yeah. of basic scripting, but you couldn't really do much with it. But with Unreal Engine, and obviously Unity as well, and some of the other ones, you can do so much with it. I mean, you just need to look at the games that have been made outside of Epic with the, you know, a, with the Unreal Engine. And the amount of plugins that are available, especially for UE4, but UE5 are getting updated for, you know, the plugins are getting updated for version 5 as well. And all those plugins and the, you have a method pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but easy enough if you're committed enough to make the plugins yourself. So if there's some sort of ad framework, for example, that doesn't quite work, you know, but let's say it's just a C++ framework, you could, you know, theoretically, you know, get that working. So, yeah, the engines have come a long way. So, going off that, what's your preferred route if you, you know, because you are going to do your own projects now, game engine like Unity 3D or a custom process using OpenGL? What's your opinion in today's world and for now? I mean, if you're if you're just making a, a game alone or with you know five to ten or fifteen even people I would go unreal or unity uh, for sure if you are making a really specialized thing so something that you know paradox has a need for a custom game engine because they're doing like a bunch of simulations and stuff that need to happen you know etc cetera, etc cetera, then maybe you should look at your own game engine but really there's like there's no need to go that route if you're 
you know if if you're if you're just making a, a regular type game you know a 3d game or a 2d game you, you can get by like pretty pretty good on the engines that are out oh yeah for uh, sure i mean i always the problem i had with unreal and unity and some of these ones they were a bit overkill i found especially unreal for some simpler projects and especially if you wanted to go down the 2d route unity less so but especially unreal they yet yeah, they have you know 2d features in there and options to make a 2d game but it felt like it was so over complicated the engine was to do something in 2d you would almost be better off using a dedicated 2d engine like what's your opinion on that and do you have any experience with 2d engines and games and what would you recommend yeah, I mean, I haven't really um, spent a lot of time on 2D, actually. It's probably one of my least uh, knowledgeable areas. I'm more of a 3D person, actually. And the reason for that is because of kind of my, you know, role. is more of a 3D role, you know. I, I like to get, get in there with shaders and stuff like that. But when it comes to, like, 2D, I, I um, yeah, just just from instinct, I would go with Unity. But, yeah, I'm sure Unreal has come a long way in, on that stuff, you know, I haven't really looked into it too super deep hmm. and like do you enjoy OpenGL how do you find it because OpenGL is pretty hardcore if you're just doing raw OpenGL just to get like a triangle drawn I remember <laughs> at uni because uh, I, I sound like we did a pretty similar degree because I did computer game programming and as part of that I learned you know OpenGL and oh, yeah. unfortunately at uni they only taught which I don't know why considering at that time the modern you know, OpenGL was out and it was pretty refined. They but they taught us the fixed pipeline system, which oh wow, yeah, like and that was twenty ten to twenty fourteen. So it was like I said, it wasn't that long ago that they should have taught us uh, the modern that they sh- that they should have taught us the fixed one. I feel like the lecturers probably didn't really know much about the other ones per se and because the fixed pipeline you it is a lot easier to to start getting stuff on the screen and a few basic stuff i feel like that's the reason why they jumped into it it didn't make sense for them to do that and then switch to something else it should have just been the modern one from the start but like what's your experience of opengl like how do you feel? oh yeah no i mean i agree that that's that's crazy that they would do is that uh computer science or uh the degree you mean yeah Computer games programming, so that's even worse. The fact that it was a actual right. games programming degree—that is crazy. That's intense. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that I mean, you know, obviously to get by in in today's anywhere, like anywhere, you 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 need to be able to work with shaders and and stuff like that. And the the old fixed stuff where you would just like draw a you know draw a shape in code, like that doesn't fly nowadays you can't do that and i'm i'm amazed that there are professors well i mean 2010 to 2014 i guess i guess the development like sphere wasn't as big as it is now you know now it's a lot more like commonplace to actually uh for people to to do that kind of to you know go those educations and all that stuff but but it was yeah. still advanced enough that modern should have been taught. Because one of the things I do, I make videos on YouTube, and some of the stuff I've done is, you know, programming. That's how I started with programming videos on YouTube. And some of my most popular programming videos were OpenGL. 
And initially, I just yeah. was doing the stuff that I did at uni, which was the fixed pipeline stuff. And instantaneously, and that's like, you know, early on, uh, not long after uni, in, instantly I'm getting messages, you know, this is old, you know, we want videos on the new stuff. And yeah. that's, I think that's probably how I, you know, got introduced to it in a way. That and just a bit of just regular Googling of OpenGL and then coming across the other stuff, which didn't make sense to me because I had done the fixed pipeline stuff. So, but I, I saw this, I see this a lot uh, in academia in general. There's so much stuff that's taught it that's out of date. Yeah. And it's just like, Something like maths is fine. You can teach a thousand-year-old theorem, and it will be as applicable then as it is today. Like it, maths doesn't won't really change so much within a ten to twenty-year period. That if you yeah. learned maths twenty years ago and you were great at it, and you still know it today, you'll still be fine. Okay, you yeah. might use computers a bit, you might leverage a bit of technology, but the actual, you know, the maths algorithms in the textbooks are the same whereas you know the stuff they were teaching us was and another thing we learned c in the first year and then mm. in the second and third year we did c plus plus and it was not some sort of you know reason where they was trying to introduce us to the precursor to c plus plus and then get us onto c plus plus it was because the left we found out after the lecturer who did it, he preferred C and he refused to do C plus plus. But he <laughs> was a pre. I, I don't. I, I don't. We don't really have tenure in this country. But uh, I, he was a pretty old professor where he had been there for a while. So I don't think they was going to get rid of him. Um, mm. So, that's, but again, that's you know one of those things. But they did. I know rejig a few things around where they did say you they started doing C++ from first year because I remember getting into second year and obviously the intensity of the projects ramps up a fair bit and we've just done C and now we're having to learn C++ and when you haven't done object-oriented programming before, that's, it's, it, right. it just blows you away, yeah. good and bad, and you just think, what the hell's going on? So I did see that a lot. And then other tools as well that we were using, they would just be old software, old tools. And it's just like, it's, that's not what the industry is using. No, absolutely. You're right. And I mean, there is a, there is a charm to, there's an idea to using like C, just, just learning it like, okay, this is what's actually going on uh, under the hood, you know, with memory management and so yes. on, you know, alloc and malloc and all that stuff. Like that's good knowledge to know in the back of your head, like keeping that in mind. But it's like, yeah, it's just it should just be an introduction, like one month C, and then you move on or something like that. Just yeah, the not a whole year. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. That's uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so if it's like you know, I'm I'm starting out. What should I do? Like, I don't think you should start with C or maybe even C plus plus. Maybe just maybe start with like C sharp or or you know Java or, or um, uh, you know uh, Python or one of the mo like modern languages. Um, just just from Otherwise, you just go down this weird path where you, where you start at C and then work your way up. It's like it's going to take you years to get somewhere, you know. Um, but but yeah, in terms of what what you asked about earlier about uh, OpenGL, I think um, I, I had the chance to try both DirectX and OpenGL, and as you know, it's like it it can be really tough to get something on screen. But it's like OpenGL 
to render something is like five lines, and then <laughs> DirectX is like you know two hundred lines or something. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Like oh, like this was you know DirectX ten and eleven, so it's maybe it's changed from to twelve and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. I, I remember another crazy one because at uni we we did OpenGL, we did DirectX over the few years that I was there, but we also on another module and again like. It, it just seems so random. We we did 3D drawing using the Win32 API. No <laughs> OpenGL, no DirectX, just using the Win32 API. And, I mean, trying to do that was horrible. That is classy, though. I mean, it, <laughs> it was a I, I hated the, the Win32 API. That's the stuff that <laughs> I definitely don't want to go back and do. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. That's, that's intense. Like... I remember the uh, Windows API. You can do some crazy stuff with it. You can do like you know shared memory, where you would have like two two programs that share the same you know uh, amount of bytes on the hard drive, and they can they can both deposit and take from that. Like they can be like, oh, uh, I've I've got this shared space on the hard drive where we both these programs are kind of you know borrowing from or, or or taking from, which is an interesting concept, you know. Um, but yeah, they, that's. Uh, the the Windows API is also just just like just like Windows often is, you know, it's too too big for itself. It's too yeah. it's too too much, too too many classes, too much stuff going on. Yeah, it's got a lot of. I'm just talking about Windows in general because obviously it's it's been around for you know since the early days of at least consumer you know grade computers, mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of stuff on there. It supports a, the amount of legacy stuff it does support is actually ridiculous and but as a result there's just like you said so many classes so many features so much stuff there that it just overwhelms and over complicates things and people and but yeah that's just windows in general <laughs> yeah so 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 wait so um you studied some like uh coding and stuff like that did you do that for for games or was it like more general purpose or how was the no, no, it's for games because the degree was games programming. Right, exactly. So, so, so then, did you did you end up end up like? Did you did you enjoy that? Did you like the process of making games and stuff like that? Or oh yeah, like the the process and the experience of making games. It, it's something I think about a lot because right now I'm not like the main stuff that I do that, that let's say, you know, makes money is not game related. You know, the, the, the it's programming related and there's some other stuff as well. And it's technical, but it's not game related. And I, a little while back did start some personal game projects again, cause I've done some apps before releasing some games on the mobile store. Uh, mm. And I wanted to, you know, get back into it and I just need to put more time into, cause I really do, enjoy you know especially when i make progress in that compared to let's say a client project you know the client project you know is fine it's all well and good but making your own game like that experience is just great i i really do like working in a little team not a team in a company but like my own team and trying to get people to work with you on, on, you know, something, especially, you know, when they've got, you know, their families, you know, I'm married now, I've got a daughter, but I always find that I'm willing to like try and find the hours when so many other people are like, I'll give my family the time, but then I might sacrifice some of my own time 
uh, like I'm willing to, you know, wake up one morning at 5 a.m. Uh, if somebody is willing to put in a couple of hours, you know, right. in, for example, or, you know, something along those lines. But the thing is, other people aren't and most aren't and they just want to find the time within their regular busy schedules and it becomes very difficult so, that, so that's the issue i'm having right now i'm working like i said i'm working on some projects just need to focus on them and actually do some work on the yeah. it's been a while since i've opened my current game project i would like to get back to it now that's that's uh that's what it's all about you know um, but I, I recognize the that's stuff you're talking about where like you might think okay if I if tomorrow if I you know if I get up two hours earlier I might be able to squeeze in you know some more time and 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 do that type of stuff that could be exciting or it could be really tiring depending on how how the rest of everything is going on you know <laughs> yeah I mean nowadays because I'm not old old but I'm all <laughs> definitely older than I was when I was at university I'm 31 now and I'll be right. 32 at the end of this year oh yeah uh, me too yeah oh so yeah, it's, it's the same age I'm guessing we must have gone uni at the same sort of time when did you go uni yeah I started in 2013 so that would be right around okay. the yeah. Okay. So, so as I was wrapping up, you were starting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely know that at the end of the day, or, or a few hours before I go to sleep, I can know I can tell that I'm a lot more tired than I used to be seven years ago, six years ago when I was oh, yes. mid twenties. But again, that's just inevitable. Obviously, because like, I got a family now, there's other things also on my mind that's obviously draining energy. You know, I work out now. I'm doing the I'm doing a bunch of a lot of work as well, so I know I'm gonna get you know tired. But like I said, I'm willing to try and find an hour or here. It's either the uh, you know to do it because you know I had a because we got this podcast now. It's eleven forty four a.m. in the UK where I am, and I had another podcast at seven a.m. So right. the, I did that because that was the time. Obviously, for them, they were in a different country, so it was like nine a.m. for them. So it was like a, you know a good time. So they, they you know they woke up, you know, brushed their teeth, had some food, had some food, and they you know jumped on the podcast. Whereas for me, it, you, know, I, you know, I was waking up at like half six, quarter to seven, and but I didn't mind that. It's yeah, because I'm doing something, getting stuff done, and I feel like a lot of people aren't willing to put that sacrifice in uh so the, yeah that's the issue i have I'm, I'm trying to work with other people but trying to find people that are willing to find the time is very very difficult and even just the time to go back and forth over let's say slack or discord or over whatsapp to try and do stuff because if you let's say can't jump on a call at the same time but you know the other person do better work when they can and the you know the other person do work when they can that's fine as well it's just yeah. finding a team that is willing to be as committed as you or or as close as you right yeah. yeah yeah within a, a within some kind of reason yeah no i mean i i, I recognize a lot of that and you know for me it's uh it's 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 gotten to this this point where like i've seen big projects and i've seen small projects and i've seen everything in between now and it's like i would like to find something that's pretty small that i can manage that's not super crazy that i can you know even 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 if i find like a small scope 
and then I could probably shave some stuff off if, if, I, if I need to, you know, and scope it down a bit and still be okay at the end. Because I, I could see myself, you know, oh, oh man, I, I want to make the best game I possibly could, you know, my ideal dream game. And then it just turns into this nightmare of, you know, uh, different mechanics and everything, all the features that I want to throw in there. I don't want to be in that space, you know. I actually want to make something real small, real, you know, tiny even. Maybe just a small, like, you know, uh, uh, mobile app or something or some small Steam game, you know, like a, like a survivor type game or, or something. Um, you know, one of the things that's uh, been, uh, <laughs> that I've been doing lately is uh, just Warcraft 3 maps, you know? Okay. Uh, yeah, just modding and, and stuff like that. And it's been real fun, you know? Um, some some guy made a map uh, called Tower Survivors, and it turns out that the map was unprotected, which means that you can go in there with the world editor and just mess around. And mm-hmm. I did that, and I added some stuff to it, and it was like it was so quick to do that it gave me the instant feedback. I could just host the game on on Battle.net, you know, their their uh, yeah their thing, and uh, immediately people could join, and they gave some feedback, and I could go right back to developing, and it was just such a you know, quick, quick turnaround that it felt good to be back in the, that kind of mind frame, uh, mind frame. So that's kind of the stuff that I want to make is just small stuff that I can really quickly iterate on and then move on, you know? Oh yeah. And like, you know, push out updates and features, you know, a lot quicker than what you can. If you're on some big project, let's say, whether it's within a company or a team or even your own thing, but you're like having a mobile game that's, let's say, just high score based, and it's just one screen outside of a menu and setting and high score and game over screen. It's just one game screen. And, you know, what you can do, you know, especially once it's built and it's all pretty working well and connected, it's not that difficult to start you know, tinkering away and changing things and updating things. It's, it's the initial setup, the initial creation process that's the more, you know, time-consuming and the harder part of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, in, in the larger uh, teams, getting stuff done can be can take months or even mm-hmm. years if you're unlucky. Like, especially if you've got a custom game engine, it's like, you know, these these tools or these features aren't up to par. Let's, let's coordinate and try to uh, improve that. I mean... You can do if you know how to do it yourself. You can do it pretty quickly. But once you need to start involving other people, like let's say you need a UI artist on, and you need a programmer, and you need you know someone else, like coordinating that type of effort, and especially a, a slow moving you know engine and, and stuff like that, it could take like a long time. Um, so you might not see the results that instantly if you're if you're working in a big team. No, you don't, and obviously you have less of a say as well in terms of what you want to do and what features you want to you know add as well so there's that issue you have less experimentation so like whilst you're doing some feature some other feature might you know come up and you think you know you know what this would be great within this and you know this would be great within that yeah obviously that structure can be good especially to keep some you know people on target in terms of getting stuff done but it does mean that you might not get to do the things that you want to do and that's definitely one of the problems with working in a company so you're like when you were working at paradox you mentioned that they use a custom engine was that a pure custom engine or was it based off an existing engine that they had modified so much it was basically a custom engine 
Yeah, it was. I think it's uh, evolved over years. So they started with I don't know when they started, um, but like you know, it was made to do do these kind of map painter type games, this like strategy games. Um, yeah, and it's just been developing like in house since then, and they've added stuff onto it. So to make it more modern, like they added Vulcan support uh, for a modern, modern, more modern renderer and stuff like that, and they've added a bunch of tools and uh, stuff like that, but. At the at the core of it, it's still the same kind of engine that you you saw back in the day as well. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that you obviously went to university. What specific degree did you study at uni? So I studied as a technical artist. Um, okay. And first time I studied, I, I did it in twenty thirteen. Uh, and then, you know, it was a fast period of my life where we were all like 20 to 25 years old we were all like partying and having fun and it was you know just just i wasn't focusing on the school much i was just doing stuff and having fun and you know at after i don't know one or no two years maybe i was kind of like catching up to myself going like wait wait a minute what am i doing i'm not uh, i need to learn stuff I, i'm here to learn like what, what am i doing you know so i was kind of refocusing trying to find my way again and um you know just looking at like like what should i do and stuff like that and i I took some software jobs you know tried that but it was it was it wasn't my thing I, i wanted to go back to games so i was like okay so fuck all that let's let's rethink this so i i i checked what i could do and there was another technical artist program like uh, a few towns away uh, and I looked at that and I was like, okay, this one is like one and a half years, uh, internship baked in, and then they have an excellent like track record of putting people in the industry. Cause that was one of the big problems with the first education was that after you were done, it was like, there's no connection to the games industry. So you just go, everybody goes straight to software development. It was like, why, why, why would you possibly do that? If you, if you want to go all the way into games, you know, so it didn't make any sense. So then when I found that second one, uh, when I came into like that school, I was ready, like loaded. Like I was, I was so ready to, to, I wasn't fucking around anymore, you know? (laughs) So I kind of got in there and I did my thing. And then I, uh, you know, uh, went straight into the industry after that. And then since then I've been just kind of going. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I know how it is. You know, when you are in your 20s, the direction is very different. You know, your priorities as well are also very different. Yes, so, for sure. on your LinkedIn, you got something called the Game Assembly. You know, what's that and how has that fit into your, you know, your gaming German journey? Yeah, so that's the that's that second uh, education. Now that's That's the one that I really... Uh, would recommend to people who are looking to study in Sweden for games is the game assembly because they have an excellent uh, connection to the games industry. Like, you know, the internship was baked into the education and uh, everything was just kind of, they kind of threw everything at you and kind of hoped that you would like stick it out. And a lot of people do because once you are given a lot of responsibility, it's kind of, it's it's a weird thing where it wakes something up inside you where you're like okay i need to live up to this and so you do and then it it just is a positive feedback loop kind of Um, yeah so 
obviously you've, you're taking a break from you know regular job for now doing your own stuff freelance stuff uh, how important do you think it is to take a break from your know, regular draw jobs and try your own thing in your opinion i think it's for i mean i can only speak for myself but for me it's absolutely crucial i, I don't think i could survive another uh month meaning that of course, I could I, I could go on and on and on and, and work, but it's like I got into this this uh, I don't know how to describe it, but this like this rut or something where every day looks the same as the previous day, basically. Um, and I didn't like that. That's not why I liked the industry. I liked it because it was dynamic, it was fun, and it was creative. You know, so I wanted to get back to that. And even if if I end up doing nothing for three months or something that's a win in itself because then I can, I know that like, I know this about myself is that as soon as I step away from, from trying to bang my head against something, that's when the creativity comes back. Basically, as soon as you, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Like when you're like trying to solve a problem and you're trying to solve something and you like try and you try and you try and it doesn't work. And then you like, you're like, fuck it. I'll, I'll just go have lunch or something. And you go, you know, go on a walk or something. And then suddenly it just comes to you from nowhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm looking for in the more long term is kind of taking that break, uh, refocusing and thinking about what I actually want to do. Uh, so, yeah, that's... But I think I do think it's important to, to take a break, even if that might be taking a little vacation or something or, or making sure that you're, you're, you feel good about where you're going in general. That is super important. I think it's underrated, actually. Yeah, I think it's society as a whole, uh, you know, puts it down that, oh, you know, you know, you don't have a job anymore. Like, you, even if you switch jobs a few too many times, people, you know, start talking, they start saying things. They obviously you need to try and cut that out in terms of you caring about that. But like, people have an opinion about that but like if you say you know you're in a good job that you want to take a break and you just want to try your own things relax for a bit um as long as you're not you know your family or anyone around you isn't suffering as a result it, it, people look at you and be like why are you doing that like, right. it, 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 it is such a strange thing um but yet those very same people would not work on a weekend if yeah. they're the choice and it's like why wouldn't you work on a weekend then if you're so committed to always having a job yeah yeah no absolutely and i mean it's uh i i respect the grind i do i mean people who, who put in uh, you know more than their fair share of hours and everything it's 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 that's super respectable and sometimes you have to do that and sometimes you do it because you want to get ahead and stuff mm -hmm. like that i i totally sympathize and i, I get that um but sometimes it's also worth if you're gonna stick if you're gonna stick around for the long haul, it's worth uh, taking a minute and taking a breath, making sure that you're all right as well. Yes. That's important. Oh yeah, for sure. Having that little rest period. Um, how are you finding the freelance life? Like in terms of getting clients, in terms of getting work, what tools are you finding that are working best and what tools would you not recommend for people? Yeah, so so I'm in a bit of a lucky spot because uh, of my role is is a role that is very highly requested at the moment. Like uh, as far as it lasts, I don't know, three four years of, of maybe five years. Like a technical artist, someone who's kind of in between uh, disciplines, that is uh, a growing 
kind of need for that in the industry. So I'm I'm really lucky in in, in terms of that because that that means that I can um, people need that all the time and they need someone who, who can come in and and uh, uh, make some stuff and then you know I I don't need to be there for the whole development, uh, which is great for freelancing. I can get in there do like make some some shaders and some uh, visual effects, which is kind of the two things that I do most of. And then I do some some tools as well and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I do recommend if, if you want to get into that type of stuff, just boot up all Unity or Unreal and start messing around and find tutorials and stuff like that. And that's how you would get into it. But yeah, I, I'm, I feel good about the freelancing stuff because I, I, I don't feel like I'm... Uh, I don't feel like I, I I need to look for too too hard for work. It, it kind of comes. Yeah, comes. that's good to hear. Yeah, because you hear some people and they have to look a lot and they find it difficult. But obviously, if that's not the case for yourself and uh, and it's giving you an opportunity to you know take a break from the regular nine to five corporate grind, then that's fair enough. Are these for uh, freelance stuff? Are they remote or are they on site? Or like, what's the situation there? I mean, some people want you to be on site, but I I prefer remote. Um, I have a comfortable workstation. I feel good where I'm at and stuff like that. And I have all the tools available, or that I need to have, you know, in terms of software. And and uh, I've got a great you know monitor, which is important for at least for me. And I think if you're if you're like a, if you're a coder or a programmer, you probably need like a vertical monitor or something. You know, that classic thing where you have a, yeah. a vertical standing monitor. Um, but yeah, tool, tools are important for sure. But um, the 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 thing is, like most software is free or available. You can you can usually find some kind of way to even some of the art tools are have started to appear on Steam. Like uh, Substance, uh, I saw Substance on there a few times and stuff like that. Um, it's more accessible now than it used to be. Oh yeah, for sure. The 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 opportunities available and the tools, the accessibility has definitely improved over the years. So, because you've done OpenGL, you've done DirectX, which one do you prefer and why? Like, if you had to make that one choice, which one do you prefer and why? I would go with OpenGL, but actually, I would probably learn Vulkan. Okay, yeah. Um, it, it, when I'm saying OpenGL, I'm saying the Vulkan route as well. Yeah, yeah. The, like the, the OpenGL family, let's say. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I, I think that is... I would prefer that. It seems to me like Vulcan is pretty. I don't know if you've seen uh, Doom or Doom Eternal, one of yes. those games. Like they run super, super silky smooth on I know, a like, lot of rigs. Their and frame it, rates are insane. insane for what yeah. they're pushing out. Obviously, id knows what they're doing. Right. <laughs> anyway, of they've got a good team. They got clearly good management that's organizing it all. And they're obviously using the latest tools. Obviously, even with the, even their OpenGL, you know, API versions work well. But well, yeah, when you put it into Vulkan, because I've got a Steam Deck and I tried Doom Eternal, I with a sort of a what's it called a varied resolution, you know, where you just mm-hmm. go up and down yeah. a little bit depending on you know the frame rate. I was able to get a pretty much a silky smooth 60 on max settings without any noticeable drop in resolution. Obviously it, it was, you know, clearly obviously dropping, but because obviously the screen is small, but to get that level of fidelity and play. Wow. And then I compared it to doom the original, you know, the, the 2016 one. Uh-huh. And 
Doom Eternal runs better than 2016 on oh, hardware. Oh, wow. Uh, and when you're seeing that, because it's usually just the thing that, oh, th- the next game, like three, four, five years later, is going to just run you know, worse on the same hardware. It's, it, it was just a given. Like th- There was never really a case where you never thought that would be the case. Yeah. Assuming it's all optimized as well. If we put Crisis out the window where Crisis 1 just was not optimized <laughs> for multi-core and they yeah. just threw, uh, you know, everything at it, you know, all the special effects at the time. But every other game, you know, you get, let's say, Bioshock, and then you get Bioshock 2, Bioshock Infinite. There's no way that you're running... Bioshock Infinite oh, yeah. or Max on the same hardware that what you did with Bioshock One, but you could kind of do that with Doom Eternal, especially if you had high end hardware from when Doom Eternal when Doom originally came out. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting dynamic that Vulcan has introduced. Have you done much Vulcan yourself? No, nah, I mean I I I need to I need to learn. Uh, it's it's one of those areas that I just haven't looked into. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, from what I've heard, it's similar to OpenGL, but it's like you've got more uh, advanced features and stuff like that. So I'm yeah. I'm really like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind hopping into that challenge at some point, but not right now. But yeah, I'm excited for that. It's fun that you mentioned Crisis. It's one of those games that. I really enjoyed when it came out, but yeah, it was a real system killer. It was <laughs> murderous, uh, but that was a cool game. I, it I was. Just, yeah, I just remember like being amazed by you know shooting down the trees and it would like de- like destroy the tree at the specific location where you yeah, shot every it. little part. And then when you shot the obviously not all of the trees, but you know that main tree because they had that main tree that had a few main leaves plants that had a few main sort of twigs that if you shot they worked really well. And if you sort of moved through it they would react to the body and i find most games still to this day aren't that good at that yeah. aspect i'm trying to think i was playing a game recently oh, oh i was playing horizon call of the mountain on psvr too because i came out last week and the i was there because obviously it's vr i have controllers to represent my hands in the game i was able to sort of interact with the leaves and i was like this reminds me of crisis and they just don't do much beyond surface level in games they're just it's too surface level and yeah things get a little higher resolution you get hdr you get you know it looks a little nicer every year or two but it's still in terms of depth i feel like they're my opinion on this is i would rather have a game that's a 720p and looks like Avatar and has a fully interactable world than a game that looks like any game out today at 4K. It's as if 1080 isn't good enough. Like, don't get me wrong, I I like 4K. I'm happy to watch things in 4K and play in 4K. But there's so much I feel like they could do if they just stuck with a lower resolution. Yeah, and just yeah. like you know, said, you know what? We're gonna have crazy physics. We're gonna have, it, you know, to the point where it's almost. Uh, what I eventually want to see is a game engine at that real time can simulate atoms, because <laughs> because at that point, if you can simulate atoms, I was thinking about it. You wouldn't have an object in a game that's let's say a fence. That's made out of 
wood or you know meant to look like wood with a texture that you know when you shoot at it it makes a wooden sound that's pre-recorded it mm-hmm. would make a wooden sound and break like wood because it would be constructed in the same atomic configuration and the bullet would be constructed in the same atomic configuration as a bullet and the same way you know they go through the air the aerodynamics obviously i know that's a lot it's too intense (laughs) Uh, obviously you have simulations that you know you can do stuff like that but a real-time game but i was thinking imagine that that you literally create wood in the game or literally you create metal. And as a result, how you, if you drop a bowling ball on it, it will bend and do yeah. what it needs to do. No, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's the dream, right? But yeah, we're so far away from that. But, but it, you know, that reminds me of one game, actually, which was uh, when it came out, it amazed me, it floored me, which um, was Half-Life 2. Oh yeah! When that, when that came out, and you you got to like play with the physics, and you dropped something. The gravity dropped, gun. Like, you had yeah, the gravity yeah. gun, and all, and actually, like, not as you mentioned, wood and stuff like that. You know, you they had like wood pieces, and when you shot the wood pieces, it would break, and then you could break those into smaller pieces, and then break those into even smaller pieces. Yeah, like the boxes, yeah. and you know the the pallets. You could pick it up with the gravity gun, throw it at you know the enemies. Like yeah, those physics. Are, I mean, I was playing Half Life not that long ago. It's one of those games I usually play on a yearly basis, hoping that there will be a new one. I know they had the VR one, but ignoring that, I'm uh, I'm still dreaming of it. And yeah. I'm still, every E3 that comes around, I'm like, there's a chance, there's a chance, and then E3 wraps up, and I'm like, nope, nothing yeah, happened. No, not gonna happen. Yeah, maybe maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll happen. Yeah. Let's, let's keep hope alive. Yeah, I, I mean. I don't know. There's something in me that's thinking that the, an announcement is soon with them because they they've done the Steam Deck that's been successful. They did Half Life Alex, which was successful. Valve Index successful in in its own right for the type of headset it was. It was not a Quest headset where it was affordable and accessible yeah. for everyone. But for what it was, they did well with it. I feel like Valve's kind of started doing well with their own projects again, and because they had their Steam machines, which didn't do that well and uh, in all fair they had that i'm trying to think what that game was they released i think it began with an a it was like kind of like a card playing game and oh um yeah what's that what's the you, name of you that remember the one and that didn't do too because i remember there was a big hype about that like new Val, you know new game from valve and then i saw it i was like why is valve <laughs> doing this? i was like leave this to you know the mobile developers you know leave this to the developers that can't do a half-life that you know can't do a team fortress or portal it's like what obviously i'm happy they don't release a new game every year and it's just like a new assassin's creed or a new fifa but likewise i feel like they just the thing is they're in a position where they can pay every employee without realistically having to make a game because they got they got you know steam yeah passive income basically. Yeah, they got so much passive income from that and it's such a shame they obviously i know they are working on stuff and i mean it's good they have that quality standard set that if it just isn't really good they're just not releasing it and obviously they just don't talk about stuff until it's towards the end of you know being released because half-life alex they didn't really talk about it until i think a few months two three months before it was due for release Uh, so so the game was basically finished and they was wrapping up probably just a bit of testing and so yeah i mean i do appreciate it from that aspect but i do want more games 
from Valve. Valve is one of those companies where you know you're gonna have a good time. Uh, you know, like a right. new heart, like a new franchise. You know, I I loved that idea that they had with doing Half Life Two episodes. I remember when Gale, Game New or talked about it, and he said, you know, instead of spending five six years making a new game, we'll just release an episode every one to two years and there'll be like a quarter to a third of the game and there'll be a quarter to a third of the price and but we can also make sure every couple of years there's new technology in each of the ones so instead of you know you getting one and then you go there to date after a couple of years which half-life still has held up to be fair but yeah then they did episode two and then that was it <laughs> Come on, Gabe. It's been ten years. Where is it? I mean, yeah. I mean, how long has it been? Well, well, fifteen uh, since episode two. Right. No, I mean, I'm I'm still waiting. I I, uh, I have uh, I have some amount of faith left. I used to feel this way about um, Blizzard as well, but then you know things happen and they get bought by the overlords and all that stuff. So the, that's that's off the map for me. I mean, I'm sure Diablo Four will be a great product uh, and everything, but it's not like it used to be, you know. And I, I feel like. Um, Valve, I hope they still have that, that you know, that special something still in them. I think they do. Um, Al- Alex was a good game. I, I really enjoyed it. I- I've got a Quest Two, and that's the way I experience VR games right now. Um, the Quest is is really an amazing piece of technology, and like you said, it's it's accessible. It's like priced correctly. It's it's got the like form factor that I like, and everything just kind of works in a way it's sure the software is still slow it takes a lot of time to boot up and stuff like that but that's mostly fixable um oh yeah um yeah for sure the half-life alex was a fantastic game you know for what it was and it's one of my favorite vr games it really felt like an actual game and not like a big tech demo because there's so many games that are in vr like you know you got beat saber really good really fun but it almost just feels like a really big tech demo yeah it doesn't feel like you know that sort of rich deep game you've got stuff like lone echo that's you know really good as well and then you got red matter 2 but and that's the thing I'm excited about PSVR too is that we got a modern era headset and you know the games from the big studios that are priced out fifty sixty dollars or fifty sixty quid are gonna be a bit more in depth like an actual game you know with Horizon Call as Horizon Call of the Mountain is it's not gonna be just some you know just some fluffy tech right. demo. Uh, but yeah, I, Half-Life Alex was a fantastic game. And the other thing I love about the Quest headsets, because I've got the Quest headsets as well, is that not only is it cheap, I mean cheaper, a lot cheaper, it's t- just to get into a game and get start playing is so much quicker. Like yeah. compared to, because I've got a Valve Index, and I, every, so, every week I'll look at it and be like, you know, I want to you know, play it again. But then I'm like, have to you know plug it in you know the base stations i mean they're in position i just need to plug them in from the back but and then i'm like oh they're gonna be fussy and then you know the computer i've got to make sure it's just so many things and then i put the quest on and i'm just in a game like just like that 
And because I've got the Quest Pro as well, I bought that one. And because it's got a dock, it's always updated. Like, right. it's always charged. It's always updated. I'm like, I can literally just pick it up and put it on, and I'm ready to go. I've got no thing of I have to spend 20 minutes to set it up when I only wanted a half an hour gaming session. Yeah. No, exactly. That That's where it needs to go. That's where... It... That's where they're lacking at the moment in general, the, the VR sphere, you know. They, yeah. they really need to get that nailed down. To, for, And I mean, someone like um, John Carmack speaks about this a lot. It where does. it's like, spend... If, if, if a lot of that uh, effort went to like streamli- streamlining the process in terms of software, a lot of users wouldn't get turned off. You know, they, they would keep going because the tech is pretty much there in terms of like resolution and, yeah, and refresh rate. Yeah, willing to play it. Obviously, it can get, you know, better for sure. But it's at a point where I think a lot of people, every person I've, you know, every, I always love doing this, you know, when someone comes around that I haven't seen for a while, you know, get them into VR, even if they're a bit hesitant. I find most people are, especially if they're not too old. And, but whenever they try, they love the experience and then obviously the price might put them off the quest is obviously a lot more affordable now and but you know the whole process of it's just almost like a bit too technical it's it's it needs to be more like a console which is what the quest is and and less like a pc which is too technical that's the reason i know a lot of people don't want to do PC gaming. I love PC gaming, but I know a lot of people don't like it, even the ones that can afford a nice rig, is because they're like, oh, it's just too much hassle, you know, drivers, and then, you know, dealing with Windows, and then, you know, this and that and this. And I'm, uh, whereas if they have a PlayStation, they literally just download the game and they're playing. There's like, there's a lot less hassle. Yeah. It just works. Yeah. So. Obviously, I remember you were talking about Crisis. Uh, I'm guessing you saw the announcement last year that they were doing Crisis 4? I did not. That's great news. I'm yeah, excited. so that's another reason that gives me some hope for Half-Life is that, obviously, after Crisis 3, probably didn't think they were going to do another one. Then they obviously did Crisis Remastered. Uh, I mean, that ran pretty well on the Switch, to be fair, as well. And they did, you know, obviously, Crisis re- you know, 2 and 3 Remastered. And because obviously that company had a bit of financial trouble as well, but yeah, they released a trailer. It was just like an announcement trailer. There's no, there's nothing actually in there. But they, they the official trailer from the Crisis YouTube channel, January last year, saying they are working on Crisis for a uh, working title at the moment. But I'm hoping for some announcement this year, maybe you know something a bit more, you know, in depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe like yeah. a gameplay demo or something if oh, they're yeah. ready for that kind of thing. Yeah, because if they wait too long, the we'll be looking at a PS6 and yeah. you know the next Xbox. Uh, I mean, a new Switch is due anyway because the oh, Switch has been around for six years now. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you think is the likelihood of a a new Nintendo console announcement? On e- at E3, because even the OLED version has been around for two years now, roughly. Yeah, I mean, when's the Nintendo Direct? Has that already been? Uh, I feel like it was already come and gone, because, because didn't they announce and released Metroid Prime Remastered? 
as a result right. there. Okay. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, uh, Nintendo guy, but I, I do see the value in adding a new Switch or, or some kind of new console where it's like... A bit they, more powerful. Right, a bit more powerful. They update themselves to what the other guys are doing, kind of, but then still, you know, the, the, the idea of Nintendo is that they, they do their own thing and they don't, like, make compromises, and that's great, but you also have to keep uh in in times like update yourself to the times and in terms of like tech and, and power and stuff like that so yeah I, I would love to see that i would love to see another uh another switch or that type of console they have some awesome ideas and uh yeah just make quality products oh yeah and i would like to see nintendo bring I know technically the Switch has the capabilities in there, but like to see them bring back some of the Nintendo Wii aspect of you know the gameplay, the interaction, because uh, yeah. even though like the actual controller itself can do everything that the Wii controller can, I, it's not as big and as comfortable, uh, uh, you know, like a Joy-Con on its own. Uh, is compared to a Wii controller. I mean, even an updated Wii controller that you could connect to the Switch, I think that would be a nice addition, or even the ability to connect. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't see why you can't, because the Wii controllers have Bluetooth, so I don't see any limitation of them being able to connect it via Bluetooth apart from the sensor bar. But right. I guess you could maybe get around that by... Yeah, the sensor bar really does ruin things a little bit. If, they, if it was built in and it was not sensor bar based, but you know, some sort of updated system like that would be nice to have games like that again, uh, with an actual focus on a Wii Sports, you know, style game. I know they had like a newer version, but it wasn't the same as the old one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had that game where you, um, it was a, like a bunch of mini games, and you kind of, one of them was like a cowboy, you know, you draw. Yes, I know the one you mean, yes. I mean, yeah. again, that was nice, um, but I would like some just full games, you yeah. know, using the Wii style, you know, motion stuff. I feel like with Nintendo, they do something, they a lot of time do it well and different, but then they just totally move on to something else. It's like they had the DS stuff, and then they had 3DS, so they introduced some 3D aspect of it. Then they abandoned that. They abandoned the you know the dual screen. They're on Switch now, and uh, you know because uh, obviously Switch has kind of taken over from the Wii, Wii U, and the DS side of things. But and I feel like they're just gonna kind of. Uh, I mean, I wonder if they will abandon because it, it's done so well for them. Uh, it, but it just depends if their next one does well. Because if Wii U did terribly, if Wii U did so well, they probably wouldn't have gone towards the Switch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, there, somewhere in the world, there's an abandoned warehouse with 900,000 uh, Wii U's. And uh, <laughs> at some point, when you know the apocalypse comes, someone's going to have to use that for fuel. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of them's downstairs in my house. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I bought a Wii U on the... I'm not, I, I mean, I, I, I like games, technology in general, so I will buy yeah. all the latest consoles. But yeah, it's it was one of those things where the at that point, the PS3 had, and 360 had been out for a while. Yes, they were more powerful than those systems. It, it came just before the PS4 came out. And it just, yeah, it, it just couldn't compete. It was basically... The launch, the titles on there were the old titles 
where you know those these mainly get in outside of you know specific Wii U games, mainly getting a PS3 and Xbox 360 games when the PS4 was around the corner. Yeah. And I mean, the Wii U, was that? Outlast? Uh, let's see if I can pull any more titles. Uh, there was a Zelda game at some point. Yes. Wait, wait, Breath of the Wild was on a Wii U. It, it as was well. initially, yes. And that was one of the ones that did really well. Mario Kart 8. The, I mean, a lot of people right. that play it on Switch don't know that Mario Kart 8 actually came out for the Wii U. And the Switch is kind of just like a remaster of that. Yeah, it's not a new game. I mean, Nintendo has been very cheeky with Mario Kart. They've made a lot of money off Mario Kart, and they haven't done much with it. And even the new map packs are just old maps that they've just, you know, spruced up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Nintendo seems to get away with it compared to I feel feel like if Sony or Xbox did it, they would get a lot of hate. Whereas Nintendo yes. doesn't. Yeah, I mean. Uh... The, you you could argue that the uh, PlayStation Vita was a misstep, but I, I enjoyed that. I, I, I loved the Vita. I mean, yeah, it, it, was it was great. Good. But again, it came at a time when mobile phones were so powerful and most people that wanted to do better gaming kind of just went onto a mobile phone. Exactly. Because before, yeah, you had Engage and... Yes, you could do some games on your Nokia, but it was not the same as a PSP or a DS, especially the oh, PSP. No. Like that was that actually felt almost like a console experience, and you was like, "I'm playing an actual game. I'm playing GTA on here. I'm playing, yeah. you know, Coded Arms, Gangs of London. You know, these actual full fledged games." And then mobile came about, and they had some full fledged games as well, but then they had the option to have a Candy Crush or an Angry Birds which, frankly, some people just preferred that. And, yeah, but yeah it's a shame that Sony never did another handout because I love the, the idea of the PS Vita. The graphics were so good. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to see them do a new console, like a handheld. Yeah, dude, I, really I, lo- I love will. the PSP. The PSP is a glorious piece of hardware, though. It is. Like, the, like the games that came games. out on that and what you could do with it and how fun those games were. I mean, which PSP did you have and which one was your favorite? Uh, I think I got the 2000, PSP 2000, PSP which was 2000. probably this, uh, it must have been the second revision because 1000 must yes. have been the first. Yeah, because uh, we had 1000, yeah. 2000, 3000, then you had the, I think, E1000, which yeah. removed, what did they What did they remove? The Wi-Fi? Yeah, something like that. And then they had Go. The PSP Go as well. Yeah, because I had the 1000. I had the Go. uh, Yeah, those are the two ones I I mean, I still have. My PSP 1000, I play so much. It is, it's knackered. Like, there's, I don't know what it is, because I keep all my stuff in good condition, and that is in good condition. It's just the stuff inside has just, I mean, failed pretty much because yeah. when I put a new battery in, it goes dead really quickly. Even with a new one, it just goes really bad. And uh, but but I played it too much. My PSP Go didn't play as much, but I play that now and again now. But again, it's it's hard to warrant when I've got a Steam Deck that I can play all the you know the PlayStation games on. You know the PSP games. Oh, and yeah, I can for sure. Do it on the Steam Deck up the resolution a bit, have safe states, you know, have cheats, you know, really easily accessible. But the feel of using a PSP Go or a PSP 
it, you know, the original is definitely fantastic. But yeah, if anyone's interested, two thousand or three thousand, I would say would be the way to go because it's a lot more comfortable. Because one thousand, the edges were a bit on the not sharp to cut you, but just sharp. They just weren't comfortable. And I know with the two thousand, three thousand, they made you a lot lighter and a lot nicer in the hand. You know what? Now that I think about it, I think it is a one thousand because I got it on the release. Um, I got it on release, which. And I actually got it in the UK. I was over there uh, for holiday with my parents, and you know, uh, it was around uh, Christmas time, and like <laughs> the release of the PSP had just released, and I was like, "Damn, I really want that thing!" And so my parents got it for me, and it, I just—I really didn't think—I didn't think too much about it. But when I got home, I realized that the plugs are different, of course. So I had to have like a fucking converter to go from UK plugs to. Um, <laughs> Swedish plugs and stuff like wall plug and, and things like that, but it was still worth it. It was a, such an awesome console, and then it, like just the the software itself was sleek and beautiful, just like the PS3, you know, the XMB. Yeah, that cross media um, bar when cross media bar. Yeah, like, it's, yeah, it just, just felt just so classy or something. Yeah, like compared to DS and yeah. even 3DS, like it, it, 3DS just seems like. Have you ever used Cody, the you know the media player? No, I haven't, I haven't used that. You haven't used that, okay? But the the DS and 3DS interface feels like somebody's whipped it up in their bedroom. Yeah, it look, yeah, it, it seems like a toy in comparison. Yeah, but PSP, the XMB, feels like an actual company with money's made it, and they've yeah. actually tested it, and people actually like it. <laughs> so yeah, the XMB was, and then they. They briefly had that on their Sony TVs as well. They had the XMB interface. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And and you know the XMB on there was there was like a there was also like a relationship between the PS3 and the PSP. Mm. I mean, you could play remotely even back then, which is you know it was just crazy. This is like 2006 or seven or something when when those two consoles matched up. But that was a really revolutionary idea at the time. You know. Yeah, I feel like Sony was a bit just too early with a bunch of couple of things yeah. ps vita because obviously when you look at switch it's it's it is just a nicer bigger vita with with, with obviously a dock mode uh and obviously you know full-fledged games and they were just a bit too early with that unfortunately and it just didn't work because they had do you ever i think it's japan only they had the psx you know that yeah that sort of media system which was a ps2 and like a sort of tv recording with a hard drive and everything like media player and i feel like again there was a bit early with that when you've got all the apps on your tv now and you've got nvidia shield and apple tv they just invested so heavy into it and because it failed i feel like they just stepped away from it and never went back to it and they just went to call PlayStation. And in all fairness, all of their consoles have always been good. PS1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. There's never been a console where I've looked at it and be like, that, that was a dud. Yeah. Whereas Nintendo had Wii U, that was a dud. Um, in terms of sales and in terms of just, you know, what it did. Whereas PlayStation, every console has sold really well. Uh, it's So you can't even say that about them. Whereas Nintendo, they've had that. GameCube, yeah, it, a lot of people like it, the fan base, but it did not sell the same way a PlayStation did or a Wii did. 
and same with xbox they had the original xbox which you know had a fan base but it wasn't quite there 360 had that huge fan base the price point and the fact they came out before the ps3 really helped and it was easier to develop for compared to the cell architecture and but then the xbox one just felt a bit mm, not too sure but but and now with the xbox series i think the good it's a good system but it's clearly just not selling the way playstation is yeah no it's absolutely true and i mean uh the, the, it, i feel like i'm no i'm no like analyst but i feel like it something something that's key there is the xbox naming convention where they go like xbox you know original xbox let's just call it xbox right which is fine yeah. this which is, is fine one it's the first one and then you have xbox 360 to uh, avoid uh, to to <laughs> you know because the ps3 was coming out they didn't want to name it xbox 2 so they would yeah. be like behind in terms of numbering so yeah. they named it 360 which is a silly number but hey go go yeah. off go and off and was like it's the all round entertainment system the right, 360 yes. degree yeah <laughs> 60 degrees yeah and then it's like xbox 1 xbox 1s xbox 1x and you're supposed to tell me that a a like mother buying her children some entertainment system is supposed to know the difference between them and also know like on a whim know like which one is powerful which one is like which the accessible newer? one which one is newer which one yeah. is like I, I just don't i don't see it i don't no, see it we've with PlayStation, you know a PS5 is newer than the PS3, and yeah. you know that the PS4 Pro is better than the PS4. Like there's, it's it is very simple, and then the PS4 Slim, even that you can kind of be like, oh, it's just a slimmer version, it's a smaller version. Then you got the Pro. It, it, whereas they, like you said, they had the One S, the One X, but what does that even mean? Like. It it, yeah. it doesn't mean anything just by name. And then obviously with the PS5, they'll probably have a pro with that as well. Yeah. And a exactly. slim version with that as well. I mean, yeah, the PS5 definitely looks like, uh, you know, you know those futuristic console renders that people do? You know, when they want <laughs> the new console to look so futuristic and it never does. It looks like that. Yeah, it looks like something from a movie where they're like 15 years in the future and they have yeah. to have a console on like next to the TV or something. Yeah, and it floats as well. Right, of course. Yeah. But uh, uh, obviously, this is just like a regular console. Now, are you into console gaming much? Uh, I used to be. I mean, I, I, I have a PS1, 2, 3, and then I had a 360. But then after that, I kind of stopped uh, getting consoles because I kept upgrading my PC and getting new PC mm. and stuff like that. So now I'm all fully, fully PC'd up. Um, but I, I, I sometimes I, I really like the idea of, of having a console where you know you have some friends over, you just pop in Tekken and you just play some Tekken or something, and it's really quick, really easy to just grab the controller. Whereas with with a PC, it's not really like that. No, it isn't. But I feel like even with console now, with all the updates and whatnot, and the size of updates, even that can become. A pain you're like you know you buy a new game you're excited for i've got to the point where i get a new game if it's a big one like a call of duty i'm like i'm not even playing it on launch I, I, <laughs> with all the updates i'm playing it the day after yeah yeah no, <laughs> i mean it's ridiculous install sizes on pc it was like i think they've slimmed it down because they got so much hate but it's like 180 gigs or something yeah crazy basically two or 200 gig and it's just That's... like it could because i was doing a bunch of like warzone downloading as well with it i think yeah and it's like I just want to play the campaign. I don't even want the online. <laughs> just, just let me play my campaign. And yeah. oh, the fact that obviously I remember when I first bought a physical game 
and there was just a code in there and no game, oh, right. no disc. I was like, because he had the full-on, you know, DVD-style case, the the big case. And I was like, like they had already been reducing the manuals to the point where it was just a sheet. Or yeah. you had to get the manual off the disc or online. And just then a formality I, at this yeah, point. Yeah, <laughs> at that point. And then I opened it. I was like, they had the section that you put the disc. It, it clearly was cheaper just to buy that case instead of a case that was specially made. And... They at the bottom there was just a code and it was a Steam code and I was like, "What even is like? What's the point of this? Like <laughs> uh, at this point, you I guess it's just to have it in retail because there's like you said there'll be some mother that wants to buy their son the latest game, but they won't understand the idea of Steam, yeah, PlayStation yeah. Store, absolutely. And I mean that that's still that still holds true, but. That that market has to transform at some point. I don't see how it could keep going this way. I, I, and it, I mean, retail is dying. Make no mistake; like it, it is, it is going away. And Steam and the like are becoming the thing. And that is, that is a natural progression. It's just that it needs to take hold, like you said, in the more accessible sphere, where like anybody could pick up a game for someone else, and it's really easy to do, and it's really simple and and clear how how you go about it. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, what would be great is if you can go into a store for, for example. Uh, so let's say if you knew your son's email address or the Steam account name, and you could go into the store like Game and say, "I want to buy the latest Call of Duty for my son. Here's his email. I'll pay the money, and it just appears on his account." Yeah. Uh, I mean, that would be, you know, s- something like that. Obviously, you got to make sure, you, you know, you give the right email or, you know, yeah, or something yeah. along those lines. But, um, uh, but you know, something like that where, st- yeah, on PC, it's a given that you are just going to digitally buy the game now. Unless you are buying some sort of special edition that has, I don't know, some extra physical stuff, you are just buying the digital game. It's, it's never a question. When a new PC game comes out that I want, I'm just buying it off Steam or yeah. maybe some alternative store. Whereas with PlayStation and Xbox, it is still the thing. If I can get a physical, I want the physical copy. Exactly. I mean, some of them are really uh, beautiful too, like the cases and stuff. I mean, I, I have a. Do you remember Stalker? Oh game? yes. I have that. Like there, there was like a on release day. There was like a, a you know like a rusty plate type uh, type container for it. And it was the same. I remember seeing it in the store, and it was the same price as the regular just DVD case. So I was like, "What the fuck? The special collector's edition is the same price, so I'll just buy that." And it was just like, "It's it's with me to this day. It's just like it's, it just feels more authentic. Feel it looks really good on the shelf and stuff like that." It's oh yeah, nice. for sure. Yeah, I've got a few. I mean, I used to buy a f- quite a lot of what's it called collector's edition games back in the day and but again so much of it is especially on pc they don't you know really give discs anymore so on pc it's pretty much eliminated for the most part on console yeah there's the odd one and yeah then the prices have gone up so crazy i remember back in the day when the game was 30 to 40 quid then the like get a special tin edition for like 40 45 quid and then you had the super limited edition, like the collector's edition, with like in a big box, and they had a bunch of stuff in there for like eighty to a hundred. Uh, yeah. But now you're getting it at two, three, four hundred pound. 
Yeah, of course. And it, I mean, that's the the game market has really changed in terms of pricing. It used to be also that you couldn't really buy uh, games online the way that you can now. You know, you remember um, like when Xbox 360 was in its like before it was super 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 popular. But when they were just starting out with these online marketplaces and stuff, they really hadn't figured out the pricing yet. It was like kind of wild west for a while. Yeah. Uh, and now you've got websites like CD Keys that you could buy the digital version that'll register on your Steam account for sometimes at a big discount, like sometimes like 50% off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's like, well, what the hell? It's not even like I'm getting some dodgy copy here. And, you know, these big websites, you know, they, they provide some sort of protection as well. And I, I've never had an issue with any of them. Like, yeah. When I've... When, you know, when I've bought it, you know, once I didn't get the code, but they automatically refunded anyway because they recognized that the code hadn't been, you know, sent. Um, so, so, so again, that wasn't an issue. Uh, yeah, it's it's the that's the other thing I have problem with digital. I am not buying a game that I can get for sixty quid in stores, and then you're charging me seventy to eighty for a digital. You're giving me no disc, no cop, you know, physical copy. That means I cannot share it with someone not easily. I cannot resell it. I do not have a collectible item on my, you know, thing. It is, you don't have to pay a physical retailer. So you are actually making more money. The, the reality is they should be significantly cheaper because they've, they've cut out, you know, game and I was going to say electronic boutique. Do you remember electronic boutique, the store? <laughs> yeah, EB Games. Yeah, EB it? Games. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've cut out these retailers, which, you know, it's fine. I, I don't have a problem with, but you've upped the price and then you, and then you use it as, oh, it's more convenient. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, like none of the companies have said, you know what, we're going to charge you less for it. Or, uh, I mean, the thing is, at best I've seen is them charging retail price, recommended retail, but mo- you you can always get it less than recommended retail anyway. Mm. You know, yeah. if you buy a physical copy, if you go to shop2.net, go to Amazon, sometimes a local, you know, one of the supermarkets will have a sale on one of the new games. I know they do that to attract people. And, you know, yeah, the pricing needs to really... It, it, I'm surprised there isn't some law in place to prevent them to do the you know the, the pricing on their stores because the pricing is ridiculous and i think that's really what's stopping if, if they if they really want people to go digital then lower the prices a bit they'll still make the same money it's just you'll get more people i think they'll probably make more money because they'll sell more copies yeah i mean that's the laws and stuff that gets hairy uh, because it's you know it's spanning uh, all the countries in the world basically and they all oh, yeah. have to like somehow reach a, a a price together and they have to agree on stuff i mean I, i'm sure that's difficult and everything but yeah um that's kind of why i've started to appreciate uh the smaller games more you know the indie type yes uh games where you can you can get like a really great experience for 30 or something along those lines you know where this might not be like the AAA big, you know, uh, budget game, but you, if it's, you can see the ratings beforehand and you can be like, okay, is this a game that I want to play? And then if it's, if it's come down to it and you buy it on Steam and it's like, ah, this wasn't what I expected and you only played like half an hour, you can probably uh, refund that game as well. Um, yeah, the, there's definitely that advantage 
of using a platform like Steam. Whereas with a traditional retailer, yeah, you got good retailers like Amazon with a really relaxed, you know, returns policy. But you know, if you go to an Argos or a game or a HMV and you buy a game and you open it, you know, you you take that seal off, you put it in, and you're like, nah, they, they, this wasn't for me. Because I bought a game before and I'm like. I had so much excitement for it, and this is just so rubbish. Yeah. And when you buy from one of those retailers, they ain't gonna take it back and be like, "You opened it." Yeah. So yeah, with Steam and PlayStation, I think as an Xbox, you do have that option to return stuff. Same with the Quest Store as well. Like you have the option to return stuff, and I I guess Quest is the first or one of the first consoles. I mean, if you can call it a console, consoles that is digital only. Yeah. So everything I mean, else always has, you know, a physical element. Even with the PSP where they had the UMDs, they had the disc in the case. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool, though. I mean, I, I really liked the but they, UMD. But they would eventually start, you know, breaking. Because, you know, I found yeah. you know, the glass part of it, the plastic glass, it would break and they would just go in it. <laughs> yeah the, uh, i mean yeah. any moving parts it's gonna break over time it's yeah it's, yeah whereas compared to the ps vita because it was all flash and the ds and 3ds and switch you really have no issues yeah with those the you know with those things exactly so, oh yeah for sure so what advice would you give to someone that wants to become a game artist and you know that's actionable and not generic so I do get a lot of people saying, you know, they want to become a developer. Some say they want to become, you know, working games. What advice would you give? I would say start out, um, start small. Look at tutorials, check out uh, something like, you know, Brackies or one of these like big online YouTube tutorials where they have a series. That they'll go through how to make a game from, from A to Z, basically going from the start to the finish. That's important. Um, you can also... Let's say that you may want to make a platformer. Like you would, you would first search up. Okay, how do I make a character jump? How do I make a character walk? How do I make a character die and live and respawn? Things like that, and you can find that information online. It's it's so accessible these days. I would just go download uh, probably Unity or Unreal and or maybe even Game Maker. Game Maker is great nowadays. I mean, Hotline Miami was made in Game Maker. Uh, Undertale was made in Game Maker. You can probably achieve a lot of stuff there too. Um, uh, yeah. The, in terms of other advice, like get into the games industry, that's a whole different topic. But I think you need to start with uh, like learning some stuff before you even uh, attempt that. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Game Maker has come a long way. I remember when I used that first in my first year of uni in 2010, it was very rudimentary what you could do with it then. Yeah, and it was like almost silly the the interface, and it felt like a kid's toy almost. Like you it know, did, it just, yes, yeah. But yeah, they, they've they've gone on since then to actually improve that stuff a lot, which is nice. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so, how important? It sounds like it is. How important is gaming in your life? And what are some of your earliest and fondest memories of gaming? It is important. Um, I have less. I, I spend less time playing games now, and 
I, I feel like after I've been in the industry a while, I start looking at games differently. So when I see a new release, I, I look at the features they have and I look at the you know, effects they have and the shaders and everything. I'm just analyzing things. So that kind of hurts my enjoyment of, of games nowadays a bit. Uh, but definitely, you know, I, when I started playing, you know, I started with probably Quake 1 or somewhere around there. Um, that was my like, kind of earliest stuff. Uh, and then, you know, Age of Empires and things like that. The, that was the early formative games for me. I was primarily a PC type guy, but uh, there was a few console games in there too. Fair enough. Yeah, I remember some of those old, older titles, you know, Quake, Unreal Tournament, what, 2004, oh, yeah. Half-Life 1, Half-Life 2, I mean, I mean, all those sort of games at that point, Far Cry, felt like you had a, so many great games that weren't from the big studios, weren't, you know, huge, huge. Oh, you know these, you know these other ones that would come and they would be become huge games. You know, like Fear, for example. Yeah. You ever play Fear? Yes, of course. Oh yeah, like the the graphics and then the physics where you could, you know, shoot. I can't remember that gun that fired needles effectively. Yeah, could, yeah. And you could like literally have the person hanging uh, on the wall. And I remember the AI would flank you. The yeah. AI was really good. And then I think they would like throw tables over. Then the lights that were moving and the shadows, the atmosphere that Fear created was fantastic. It doesn't hold up as well as something like Half-Life. I don't know what Valve did with Half-Life, which yeah. holds up so well. I remember, I, I wonder what's your take on this. A, a friend of mine about about six, seven years ago, he's, he was talking about this, you know, games holding up. And I remember say to, saying to him, that Crash Bandicoot, the original ones, hold up so well. You know, they still feel good to play. And his an hypothesis was that games that are in a more lighter setting, a um, bit more lighter, airy, uh, hold up better than games that are in a sort of darker, more grim setting. Sure. I mean, back then, they used to paint the dark parts into the texture itself instead of the lighting. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So... It, it, it makes a lot of sense of why that, that holds up better. If you play Half-Life 1 and you look at the like rock textures and stuff like that, you can notice that they, they try to paint shadows into the actual rock. Yeah. <laughs> the texture, which... It, I, I'm, I'm not trying to compare that game to a modern graphical engine or anything, but it's like, if you just compare that to Crash Bandicoot, where everything is stylized and kind of light, and like your friend was saying, it's kind of easier to forget that you're in a, a an old game engine you know? yeah yeah because I, I love playing the original crash bandicoot don't get me wrong insane trilogy did a really good job uh, with the older ones but i like playing the old ones as well and i like playing half-life but when i try and play something like fear or some other games from even some that aren't that old i i just don't get the same feeling and yeah, it's interesting that you're saying with the older games, the darker parts, they would effectively just put it into the texture, and as a result, it just doesn't hold up as well. Uh, I wonder how... I, I might go back and play some PS3 games, because they weren't that long ago, but long enough that they're pretty old, and see how they feel, like the lighter ones and then the new ones. But the problem with yeah. the PS3 games is most of them aren't 60 frames per second. Like the frame rates of those games, when you go back, you're just like, I don't want to play this. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. It, it was really like, it was, re- they were they were trying to push it so hard. 
And I remember, yeah. like, the if uh, did you ever play The Darkness for PS3? Oh, uh, uh, the original one. There was a sequel, but there was an original one. But yeah, that one was really rough on the frame rate, and it was really like dark areas and yes, I remember this game. Yeah, there was a whole World War One section in there, which there was a lot of crazy stuff going on in that game. But that I remember, like the frame rate was really taking a beating, and even stuff like uh, Grand Theft Auto when they released uh, Four. on P- I played it on PS3 and it was like, you know, sometimes it was like 18 FPS or like 15 FPS. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was really suffering at times. Um, yeah, they hadn't they hadn't really gotten there quite yet, you know. Yeah, it just wasn't quite there. And yeah, the frame rate for... Uh, obviously, the architecture did not help things. It definitely made things difficult. But yeah, the it just wasn't an era where 60 frames per second on high-end games... At any decent resolution, you it just wasn't achievable. I mean, Call of Duty did it, uh, you know, pretty well. But again, the graphics was, I mean, they were good, but they weren't quite, you know, the highest end. They weren't like Resistance, Fallen Man, or they definitely wasn't Killzone or Gears of War. So they, yeah, they definitely sacrificed on things there. And I'm happy that consoles have got to a point where 60 frames per second is a good standard now on pretty yeah. much all games. Absolutely. That is like, that is so key. You, I mean, you don't even think about it that much when you're developing the games, but when you actually sit down and play games, it feels, it's such a drastic difference. Like even going back to PS1, no, not PS1, um, N64, you know, uh, GoldenEye, and I'm a notorious GoldenEye hater, but like GoldenEye had a, a shit frame rate. I, I don't know if you've played it lately, but it's like, if you it go back wasn't to I played it. If you go back to that game, it's gonna it's gonna floor you. It's it feels so bad to play because the, like you know you have to try to aim and the frame rate is fighting against you and stuff. Like if that game was just smooth, it would be so much better. Yeah, it it, it definitely is one of those things. The frame rate makes a huge huge difference on games, and I'm just happy that you don't have to be on PC only to get a nice enjoyable frame rate on games now it's the experience is definitely a lot better and what's interesting is because of steam deck like um, people are kind of seeing 40 frames per second like 40 hertz as a acceptable frame rate and it honestly runs pretty well compared to 30 on the steam deck i wonder if that might become more of a standard uh, than you know you're having to do 60 yeah Um, because instead of because you know you get games now where they have a quality mode and then like a performance mode and sometimes they'll have a bit more like ray tracing and whatnot but the quality is usually 30 frames and the performance is usually 60 frames and now i wouldn't mind having an in-between mode of 40 to 50 40 to 45 frames but i'm getting most of the you know quality you know features yeah yeah and key there is also that it's stable you know that it doesn't dip a lot yeah, that would be that would be ideal. Yeah. Oh yeah, like it, 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 the stability of frame rate is the most important because you can have 120 average uh, in your game in your on your game, but if there's dips to single digits now and again, then it doesn't matter. You need to have it consistent. Yeah. You know, within that range for you to run, and yes, some games just do it really well. Some developers uh, do just do do it. You know, really really well. I do know you need to go. Uh, soon, um, 
Linus. So yeah. I'm going to wrap up the podcast now. I want to, you know, thank you for coming on. It's been a great discussion. We've definitely talked about, you know, a lot of cool stuff with, you know, games, your career. Actually, before we wrap up, one little quick question. I always like to ask this at the end of every podcast. Does money buy you happiness and why? Mm, oh, that's such a good question. For me, it was it's never about the money, really. Um, but money does give you freedom to do what you need to do. So in, in terms, like, man, I feel like I just want to give a straight answer instead of fucking around so much. No, I, I would say I would have to go with no. Because I mm. remember being like, after after I studied, I was, you know, I didn't have any money and... I was already I was not in the industry but I was making my own like games at home and stuff and I was I remember just being happy even though I didn't have the cash or didn't have anything. I, was just like, <laughs> I know I remember how it was same for me when I was after uni the happiness of just making games. Yeah, yeah. I mean for me that that's a simple pleasure for me but it, as time goes on it gets more complicated because you you have responsibilities, you have bills and everything and if you can, if you can uh, get some money to put that away for a while, that does give you some freedom, and you know, freedom to do whatever you, it is you need to do, and that might give you happiness in the long run. Yeah, uh, I think it's important knowing what aspects of life. I feel like money can buy you happiness, but if you think it's hundred percent happiness in every aspect then no like there, there's some things you're still gonna like you like let's say money can get you a gym membership or you know a gym at home or you know gym equipment but unless you put the work in you you, you ain't gonna be happy yeah. from the healthy you know the uh, healthy part of your life so you know you you need to direct it at the right place it's like having a car you could buy a fast car that doesn't necessarily going to make you much happier than just knowing you can have a decent car and that anything that goes wrong with it, you don't have to worry. You can take it to the garage, get the tires, get the brakes, you know, get everything fixed when it needs to. So knowing that there's, there's a point in every aspect of your life where money will take you so far, and then after that, you know, the, you know, you'll get you know diminishing returns uh, w- yeah. with things. I think that's where people really suffer, where they get a lot of money. They'll be like, okay, you know. If I get a fast car, if I get this, I'll get this, I'll get this, all expensive stuff usually, they're going to be extra happy instead of realizing, instead of having a half a million pound car, just having a 50 grand one will get the job done. And if you really have an interest in cars, then you grab you know, the more expensive one. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But but just understanding that you're, you don't need to have the most expensive one. Because I know people that are really rich, then you go to their house and they've just got a, a normal TV. It's not because they can't afford it. It's because they're, they're happy enough with that particular TV. And when it you know breaks, they will get a new one. Uh, but again, it's that point where it does the job for them. When it breaks, they don't worry about it. They'll just go to Curry's. They won't even shop around. Just go to Curry's, grab a, you know, the latest one, you know, what, you know, what's the latest at that time, and they're okay. But then they'll have stuff that they'll focus on. So knowing that, whereas I feel like a lot of people feel like if they just throw money at every aspect of their life, it's just going to get happier and better. And it's just not the case. But like I said, I will wrap up because I know you have to go. So again, I want to thank you, Linus, for coming on. It was a great podcast. And I would love to have you on again soon. 
Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate all the all the old games talk as well, like all those uh, old old titles and stuff. It's fun to talk about those. Oh yeah, it was a nice trip down, you know, memory lane. I, I feel like we're gonna probably do a few more calls, just you know, off podcast, just to you know, talk some old classic, <laughs> you know, games. So yeah. yeah, thank you for coming on, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Right.